0: Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do, that is all, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from, from following the sheep, that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. To God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have entrusted us with truths that transcend all of us. For, O oh Lord, you have entrusted us with the gospel. Father, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are no longer... Worthless before your sight, but we have dignity, beauty, and meaning. So, O Lord, give these things to us today as we come before your word, seeking to be instructed and taught by you. O Lord, may I as a man diminish, and O Lord, may your Son appear in our midst. May we taste and see his glory and goodness as we consider the promises that you gave to his ancestor, one of his fathers. And Father, as we consider their meaning in our life, O Father, Might we delight and might we yearn for the establishment of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In his mighty name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In only eight days, we all will have the opportunity to taste and experience a little bit of God's love. We're going to taste and experience it in different ways. Some of you as parents are going to see it when you give of what appears to be, from your boundless resources, gifts to your children. Gifts that they would in no way be able to duplicate for you because, well, let's face it, our kids are quite poor. (laughs) For some of us, you'll have the opportunity to taste and experience a part of God's love in a different way as you open your homes in hospitality and friendship in fellowship with those, some of whom you know in varying degrees, some of whom you are in varying levels of um, relational peace with. Some of you also will have an opportunity to experience and taste God's love by what you don't have this holiday season. You'll remember those memories in past, of the past. You'll remember your brothers and sisters. You'll remember your family members that are no longer with you. And you'll yearn and long for the day when You are restored to them and You are present with them, and death holds its sway and power over our lives no more. See, in each of these ways, God has given us the opportunity through the calendar that we utilize in Western civilization to taste and to experience a little bit of His covenant and steadfast love with us. See, the concept of God's steadfast love is powerful and present throughout all of Scripture, and once you start to undersee it, once you start to see it, you can't help but see it on the pages of Scripture everywhere. It's in the Psalms, it's in the prophets, it's unveiled and revealed through the ministries and through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even here in our passage, we see it rearing its beautiful and glorious head all over again. You see, God's steadfast love, His covenant love, is given from Him who is far greater than all of us, who is immense in wealth and riches, who has no need of us or of anything. But out of His affection for us, out of His preference for us, He extends to us His mercy and love. He does it without expecting anything in return and sometimes knowing full well in the midst of doing so, That we as people will fall short, will stumble, will scratch our legs, will even openly and outwardly transgress his law and his will. But he gives it nonetheless, because in his steadfast love, he reveals his glory that he is humble, that he is meek, that he is loving, and that he will quite literally transgress heaven and earth, time and space to dwell and be with his people whom he loves. Here in our passage, David the king finds himself in a circumstantial position of authority. Throughout our passage, he is referred to not by his first name, David, because David has disappeared. Now he is the king of his people. He is the king of Israel whom God has established as his anointed one over his people. He has recently, through his own convictions, brought the Ark of God and the Tabernacle into the new capital of Jerusalem that he has established for himself. Because he's wanting to align in his people's minds that he views his kingship as an extension of God's own kingship and sovereignty in the world. He also, as king, wants to be near to the Lord, near to him at all times. And so, in so doing, he recognizes and sees that there is something wrong in the world that he himself wants to correct. But in doing so, in striving to give a gift to God that he will bless, that will bless God, God actually uses the shortcomings and the misgivings of that very gift to teach David something about his steadfast love for him. And not only to teach David, but to teach all generations something about his own character, beauty, and truth. Let's take a moment, friends, and let's consider the gift of David to God. Let's consider it in its beauty. Let's consider it in its shortcomings. Then let's also consider the greater gift that God gives to David. But not only the gift that God gives to David, but the gift that God gives through David, through the covenant promise to establish his son and his kingdom forever. Well, our passage begins opening in verse 1 with David the king living in his house. He had recently built and constructed for himself a fine temple, but as he looks out from the backyard, from the back patio of his temple, and looks up to the pinnacle of Mount Moriah, he sees that there is something wrong in the world. He lives in opulence while the Lord, the king, the God of hosts, who has done so much for him and for all of his people, lives in a humble, meager tent. And so he invites Nathan, the prophet, to come, and he shares a little bit of his vision. Now, he doesn't even get into blueprints or drawings. He just throws out there that first inkling of an idea that he has. He says to Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan, the faithful prophet, seeing uh, David's intentions and his position and the rightness of what is going on, he says to him, "Go, do that is all, in, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you." Well, before we throw David under the bus for what he missed in God's intentions, let's consider here for a moment the goodness of David's intentions and purposes regarding his intended gifts to build God a house, to build God a temple of his own dwelling. See, David in his life is concerned about God's glory. He recognizes the differing circumstances between the opulence of his palace and the meagerness of God's own temple. What will the nations say when they consider the glory of our God and by contrast see that I live in a place that is greater than the Lord? What will the people think if we continue this humble abode here of my own kingship while the God of gods and the king of kings lives in such a humble and remote place? David, in his own concerns, wants to give something that is lasting, that preserves and demonstrates to God and to the people the priority of God in their life and in their um, culture as the people of God. He desires to use his status, his resources, his time to go about building and constructing a temple that is fit for the God of Israel. Well, he also understands, secondly, that this is the next step in God's own redemptive purposes for His people. There's a key phrase that's mentioned here in verse 1, that when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, we see that parallel, those parallel phrases in Deuteronomy chapter 12. When hundreds of years prior, the Lord says through Moses that when he that is the Lord gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live safely, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose, to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and all your sacrifices, your tithes, etc. You see, David recognizes that now that they have been established and that rest has been given and a new capital has been appointed, that now the next logical step in God's redemptive purposes is to reveal and to appoint the place where he desires to be worshipped. And in so doing, he wants the aligning of biblical demands, and expectations to also come through with his life and his actions toward God. Thirdly, he receives, he seeks out pastoral support. (laughs) He goes to Nathan the prophet. He doesn't want to work and operate on his own ambitions without first checking with the prophets if his actions are good and right and sincere and true, and he receives that report and that support from Nathan. But there's something here in his actions that both he and Nathan missed. And so that night, the Lord comes to Nathan and he corrects the inaccurate information that Nathan gave to David earlier that day. There are two essential values that David missed in his intentions regarding his purposes in God's gift. The first is that God is quite comfortable with the tent in which he lives. He delights in it. It reminds him and the people of God of his redemptive purposes throughout his time and tenure and ministry with his people. God has not been fixed, but he has moved and dwelled with his people in a tent as his people have lived in tents as they dwelt around in the wilderness and as they were sorting things out regarding their capital and places of worship there in the land. God has enjoyed living in this tent. The second thing that David and Nathan missed is David's own worthiness to build the temple of God. Multiple times in God's corrective statement, he he means, he messages to David, David, do you, should you do this thing? Why do you presume that I have chosen you to do this task? You see, here in David's intentions and actions to the Lord, he reveals things that we ourselves are sometimes also guilty of committing as we seek to give of ourselves to the Lord. Firstly, we can sometimes impose our expectations and our concerns upon God. The second thing that we can do is we can misread our worth in God's eyes to do the tasks that He has called us to, or that we sense He has called us to. Imposing our expectations and misreading our worthiness. Now we could go and spend much more time elaborating on those, but the key that I want to focus here on is when we find that we have fallen short in giving to the Lord. The purpose that He is drawing us to is to draw us to a new state of humility and openness before Him. I know that we experience and have experienced multiple levels of frustrations, hurts, disappointments and pains before the Lord regarding our actions, our missteps, the things that we've done, the things that we've left undone. And the purpose of all of that in our lives is for God to bring us not once, not twice, but continually to a point of humility and openness before Him. Learning humility isn't like learning how to count to ten. It's like learning a language. It takes time. It takes work. We must be deliberately about it. And God, knowing the importance of humility in the life of His saints, makes certain that we are brought into contact with circumstances throughout our lives that continue to bring us low before Him. In so doing, the right ordering of creation, of God being first, and of everything else being second is always maintained. While, David in the midst, or while the Lord in the midst of David's own humility before him also makes certain that God reveals to David in his brokenness, David, I appreciate your gift, but I have something far greater for you than the gift you would presume to give me. Yes, a temple lavished of cedar and inlaid with gold is certainly a beautiful thing but I have something far greater and far more glorious in mind for you, for your line, and for all people. So the Lord goes about establishing his gifts and lavishing his gifts on David, and he starts with Nathan, firstly giving him the right word to go to David and to correct his own um, false prophecy that he gave to David earlier that day. Secondly, he turns to David and begins through his message to Nathan to unveil his word and works and promises to him. He affirms him, saying first, go tell my servant David. David, your gift isn't what I want, but you still belong to me. You are still my servant, the one in whom I delight. He then gives him a history and theology lesson. Oh boy, great. Nothing like a history and theology lesson. Well, when they're given to us from God, oh my, what a gift they are. The Lord begins to recount David's own story and his relationship with him. He says to him, in essence, David, I delight in taking paupers and making them into princes before my sight. I took you from the pasture when you were neglected by your father Jesse and you were given Uh, the least position in your family. I took you out of that pasture and I began to make you into my king. I delighted in being with you and with my anointed people and protecting you and them from all evil. I was with you when Saul was after you and was hunting you. I was with you in the midst of your distress when you were without food and sword and resources. David, I enjoy and delight in flourishing you and in flourishing you um, you like I have all of my other people. Like Abraham, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. David, I enjoy merging your stories and other individual stories with my story, with my redemptive story. By doing so, by drawing you and incorporating you and my promises to you with those that I have lavished upon my people. Oh David, my son, I love you. I love you. Not only does he affirm these things through his theology lesson, reminding him of his promises of who he is as God, what he delights in, and how he prefers and loves David, his servant, and his son. He also continues to lavish upon him a trio of promises to establish his household and throne. He says in verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Oh, David, you want to build for me a temple, a house for my name? I am interested in establishing your house, your household, in your throne. I want your children to flourish before me. I want all of your descendants to live in dignity before me. I want them to know my righteousness, my justice. I want them to taste and experience the peace that comes with knowing me. I want them to understand their position as my anointed one before the earth and usher in a universal peace for all God's people. David, my son, I want this for you. I want this for your sons. This is my promise to you. I will establish your house forever. Now regarding your next son, I will allow him to build a temple. You, nope, I don't want you to do that. I will give this task to your son. He will build a temple for my name and I will delight in it. I will continue to keep my steadfast love upon him. I will always be merciful to his son. When he falls short of my expectations, yes, I will discipline him, but I will do so as a father does to a son always looking for his restoration before me, and my steadfast love will never part from him. Furthermore, David, I don't want to just establish your next son, but I want to establish your house, kingdom and dynasty, forever. Wow. For a king, there is no greater gift that God could bestow. For a father or a parent, there is no greater gift that God could bestow as we might perceive it in our life, than to flourish not only us, but to also flourish our own children. This is what God is promising to David. Now, there's conditions here. There's the responsibility that David's son will have to follow and to walk faithfully before the Lord. But God establishes that He will keep His kingdom and throne established forever. And this is where the promise of God not only blesses David, but all subsequent generations. You see, the people of God, like we, became greatly disappointed with their leaders, with their kings, with their shepherds, with their prophets, with their priests. And Isaiah, several hundred years later, in the midst of his disappointment, would see that the Lord, in punishing the kings for their failures before the Lord, and in punishing the people, would completely level the forest of Israel. He would decimate it. He would burn it. He would destroy it in response to the sins and transgressions that they have paid before the Lord. But out of the stump of Jesse would arise one little shoot that the Lord would bless and flourish and cause to grow into a great tree that would cause all of the nations of the world to come and flock to it and seek the King of kings and Lord of lords to establish eternal peace. Jeremiah, a hundred years later, would see similar things and he would say to the people of God in Judah who were destitute and who were destroyed in their hearts because they themselves were seeing the same thing that happened to the northern kingdoms in being taken away into ex- exile also playing out in their own lives. Jeremiah would say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in all the land. And as we've read earlier, oh, these promises given during the first century to a young virgin who saw the political corruption in her own day and longed for a king of kings to come and to be established. Oh, yes, the Lord would choose you, Mary. You of the house of David and your son, whom you shall name Jesus, will be raised and exalted. He will be my son, my king. He will establish the throne of David forever. You see, the promises here in verse 16 would become the hope upon which God's people now for hundreds of years would long and yearn that God would restore his promise to David. And when the disciples saw Jesus Christ, they saw in him their king of kings, and their Lord of lords, here, present, willing, and able to establish the kingdom of God forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what can we say in response to these gifts of God that the Lord has lavished upon David? Friends, we're, again, not alone. See, the promises given to David so many thousands of years ago now ring true for us. We have a king. We have a sovereign. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the heir to the throne of David. He is the gift of God to us. And through his righteous and sovereign rule, he is extending his kingdom on earth now through the work of the church. As we see and taste and receive this great and glorious gift, oh friends, might we be pierced before the Lord in great humility. There are our own kingdoms, our own ambitions, our own gifts that we long and yearn for in the world but can we see their ultimate termination and fulfillment in Jesus Christ? Secondly, as we see the loving kindness lavished upon David amidst his good intentions and amidst his shortcomings, might we also strive to practice the loving kindness of God to one another? Might we forgive one another this holiday season? I know as your families gather and assemble, there are going to be all kinds of dynamics at play, from levels of discomfort to levels of great stress. Can we practice the loving kindness of God this week in our homes and in our lives, showing not because we deserve it, but because God has so thoroughly loved us and established his mercy and faithfulness and love to me, so I also I will forgive you, I will love you, I will restore you. I will willingly die to the own frustrations that I'm experiencing now and place your well being over my own. Can we practice that this week in our lives and in our homes? I pray so. For in so doing, Christ is encountered in our lives, in our relationships, in our homes, and in the church. For it is the loving kindness of God that he desires to be revealed through his glory. He's revealed it and manifested it to David, he's manifested it through the prophets. He's manifested it through Christ Jesus our Lord. And now also he is manifesting it in the church for the benefit of the world. That they might know and see that God is good. That he is making all things new. And he is establishing his eternal peace on earth once more. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks to you. You who loved us when we were not worthy of your love. You who sent to us your only begotten Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. O Lord, may we also now respond to you in broken affection, in sincere humility. For, O Lord, because you have loved us, we can now love one another and extend your kingdom of love wherever we may go. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.